0: Hello, and welcome to episode 171 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer stewart A warm welcome to Nicholas T. and Jessica G. to the Modern Manager community. And a warm welcome to all of my new listeners. I hope you'll consider joining and taking advantage of the additional bonuses and resources to help you unleash your managerial greatness. To learn more about membership, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. Today's guest is Jonathan Fields. Jonathan hosts one of the top-ranked podcasts in the world, Good Life Project, where he shares powerful stories, conversations, and resources on a mission to help listeners live more meaningful and inspired lives. Jonathan is also the founder and CEO of Spark Endeavors, a research initiative focused on helping individuals and organizations reclaim work as a source of purpose, energy, meaning, and possibility. His book, Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive, was just released, and the book delivers an important message in a time when many people are emerging from the pandemic and seeking out new work that will both challenge and fulfill them. Jonathan and I talk about what the various sparkotypes are and how knowing yours or your team members can help make work and life more fulfilling. I am a huge fan of Jonathan's work, which you will probably be able to tell from our conversation. So, here it
1: goes. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: Thank you so, so much for being here and joining me today, Jonathan. I have to say I'm a huge, huge fan of your work with Types, And I just am so excited to talk to you because I have so many questions and I know my audience is going to love getting to hear you as well.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's my absolute pleasure to be able to spend some time with you and hopefully uh, create some interesting ideas and fun value for everyone.
0: All right, so let's jump right in here. Can you give us a general overview of what spark types are and why they are important?
1: Yeah, you know, I've spent pretty much my entire adult career exploring human potential, but really focusing in the area of work over the last, I, I want to say five to 10 years because. It's the thing we spend most of our waking hours doing for our entire adult lives. And these days, retirement age is becoming a bit of a misnomer also. And um, the notion that so many people spend that time feeling disconnected from what they're doing, disengaged, demotivated, kind of flatlined and devoid of meaning and purpose just doesn't sit well with me. And we've all seen the data on this. And while there had been you know, slight nudges up in the numbers towards better, it's still you know, it goes from bad to not good rather than, um, you know, like, okay to really good. And I kept wondering if we're missing something. And I started thinking about what the deeper drivers for effort were, whether, you know, at work, whether it's a role you play, a devotion that you have, like, were there a universal set of drivers for the way we exert ourselves that gave us the feelings that we all wanted? And I would think about, like, how do I pursue that? Because there's a lot of great assessments out there. There's a lot of great data out there, but they weren't answering this question. Like, what are the deeper drivers? So I started deconstructing almost any job that I could look at, listing, making lists and lists and lists and asking myself, what's underneath that? What is the deepest driver for effort that lies underneath that? And tons and tons of jobs started to deconstruct and distill into a set of 10 impulses, for effort or work that make us come alive. And once I, I saw that, I actually kind of don't like the fact that it's distilled down to 10 because it feels a little too slick, um, <laughs> but that's just where the research took me. And once I found those, then I started to realize that each one of those 10 impulses for work also has a pretty common set of behaviors, tendencies, and patterns for people who have those impulses, they tend to show up in the world in remarkably similar ways, as much as we love to think that we're all wildly individual and we are in many ways. But when it comes to these impulses, there are a lot of quirky, interesting behaviors that are repeated across a lot of people. So I started to map those out. And then I wanted to make this practical, I wanted to make it applicable. So whether you're an employee somewhere or a leader trying to figure out how to be a better leader, I wanted to create tools that helped. And at the same time, I needed to validate my ideas because my ideas came largely from thousands of hours of my own research, having access to just a stunning array of primary researchers and, and, and leading change makers in a lot of different spaces. So we spent a year developing an assessment for it, the Sparkotype assessment that was part just to further my own research and validate or invalidate my ideas, if in fact that's what happened, and also to give a tool um, that was publicly available for people to figure out what is their impulse and then how could they work with it. And We launched that right around the end of 2018. Since then, we've had about 500,000 people complete the assessment, generating about 25 million data points, really strong validation, and a a smaller study that we're going to do at a larger scale that shows powerful correlations between doing the work of this impulse and markers for meaningfulness, engagement, excitement and energy, flow and purpose in life. So that was where they all came from. And I call these impulses or I call the the bigger archetypes, the the impulse plus the behavior and the preferences and the tendencies. I call them sparkotypes because in my mind, they are the archetypes for work that makes you come alive or that sparks you.
0: So can you tell us just maybe what all 10 are and then we can dive into a couple because I know we won't have time to get into all 10.
1: Yeah, happy to. I'm just thinking, okay, I um, I think I'm caffeinated enough right now to remember all 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we start out with the Maven and the Maven's primary impulse is knowledge acquisition. It's all about learning. And what's funny is a lot of people say, well, but everybody loves to learn. And actually that's not entirely true, you know. And and most people do love to learn in different discrete ways, especially if it's something they're genuinely fascinated or interested by, but the maven has a much more centered impulse for this and they tend to open their eyes in the morning and scan and all they want to do is acquire knowledge. And what's interesting is often it has nothing to do with what they'll do with that knowledge. That's not the end goal for them. They're not trying to acquire new information so they can be better at something else. It's purely for the pursuit or, or you know, it's about the joy of knowing the thing. Next up, we have the maker. The maker, which is actually my primary sparkotype, is all about making ideas manifest. It's the process of creation. You open your eyes in the morning and you think, what can I make? And that can be in the physical domain. It can be in the digital domain. It can be experiences. It can be almost anything. It's all about that hyper-generative process of making something from nothing. Um, so for me, that showed up at the earliest days. Um, I you know, w- was an artist, was a painter. I would cobble together bicycles from old bike parts we get at the junkyard with duct tape and i've built brands i've built companies i've built books i've built you know pretty much anything that i can do i love that part of the process and as soon as it gets into a much more systems and and scaling and optimization side of things i kind of tap out which is really common to many makers next up we have the scientists so the scientist is the primary impulse is figuring things out they're all about burning questions, problems, and puzzles. You wake up in the morning and you're kind of scanning the horizon and say, give me something thorny to figure out. And generally the the bigger, the more complex, the thornier, the better. So many people who are not scientists, they run from this work because it's really hard work and it can take a long time to get answers. Scientists have something inside of them that says, this is what I'm here to do. And in fact, Finding the solution to a burning question is at once exciting and exhilarating, and often very valuable to others, and a bit melancholy for the scientists because the quest is done, and now they're off to the next one. So, next up, we have the essentialist. The essentialist is all about creating order, clarity, and utility from chaos. So, this is about systems and processes. This is about the person who sees mess, who sees things that are not as they should be. This could be in data, it could be in physical objects, and they have this impulse to just put it all together in a way that is organized and clear and useful. And Underlying that, what we've seen actually over a deeper analysis and talking to a lot of people, my own citizen grounded uh, research approach, is that many essentialists also have this impulse for elegance. And to them, what they're doing is not just creating order. They're actually creating beauty, which is a really fascinating thing. So behind that, we have the performer. And the primary impulse for the performer is all about animating, enlivening, and energizing in an interactive moment or experience. And a lot of times when we hear the word performer, we think performing arts, you know, singer, actor, dancer, theater, film, TV. And in fact, many times this impulse does get expressed there, but it also is really stifled very often because people think, well, those are such hard professions. So few people earn sustainable livings doing them. So we're going to invalidate the fact that this is your impulse. So we see a lot of times this impulse is stifled in people. And so this impulse can show up not just in performing arts, but anywhere, like all the impulses, it can show up in a boardroom, in a meeting, in a sales conference in any interaction. You can be a bartender, you can be a manager who is really turning an experience or a conversation, sometimes a hard conversation, into something that is infused with energy so that it lands very differently. Behind the performer, we have the warrior. The warrior is all about organizing, gathering up people, and leading them from point A to point B. Now, this very often shows up super early in life. It's the kid on the playground who's kind of set, gathering their friends together and saying, hey, let's go into the woods and go on an adventure together. So it shows up in really personal friendship type of ways And when you're a kid. And then as we move through life, it tends to show up in leading teams on a, an athletic basis or then in organizations um, rising into leadership. But it's not about the skill of leadership. This is a deeper impulse to bring together people and lead them. You know, people sometimes ask, is, are, you know, should all leaders be warriors? And I say, absolutely not. You know, there's a tremendous amount of skill that can be uh, wrapped into the process. And all the different archetypes or sparkotypes can be extraordinary leaders, but they lead from their sparkotype. So this is all about organizing, bringing people together and taking them from point A to point B. After that, we have what I call the sage. So the sage's impulse is all about illumination. It's about awakening insights in other people, in individuals, in groups. The sage thinks to themselves, I know something cool, something valuable, something interesting, but it's not enough. Like the maven, that's enough. For the sage, the sage would only learn something generally because they want to turn around and share it with other people. It's about the process of transmission and insight. You want to turn on the lights, for other people, and that is where things really come alive for the sage. We have three more left. If I'm counting right, the advisor and the advisor's primary growth is all—it's all, all about—it's all about growth. It's all about guiding individuals or groups through a process of growth. You're very often, you are the person who creates a container of safety and trust, and through that process, you become a mentor. You become somebody who's a trusted companion. You're not so much in the group. Oftentimes somebody who's a warrior is actually among they're one of the group that they're leading. Advisors generally exist outside of the group, and it's all about intimacy, trust, and it's a very relational impulse, and that, that often lasts over time. And it's more about growth than going from uh, on a big adventure or achieving a big goal. It's just through an evolving process of growth. The remaining two, we have the advocate. So the advocate is all about championing ideas, ideals, um, individuals, communities. And this can be anything from the environment to animals to a very specific person or community or group or cause, but it can also be an idea. You know, the advocate can see uh, an idea that is being offered by someone in a meeting and ignored and they'll say to themselves, this, look, whether we adopt this idea or not, Nobody's paying attention to it, or maybe nobody's paying attention to the person who is offering it, and maybe they're bothered by why those things are happening, but they feel that on a level where it's just not okay. And they want to shine the light or help shine the light on a particular idea. And finally, we come to the nurture. And the nurture is all about elevation, it's about lifting people up. It's very often a deeply empathic impulse. So you feel what's going on in other people's lives very often on a level where it becomes to a certain extent your own and you have an irresistible impulse to do something about it, to lift people up, to take care and to give care. And again, this tends to show up very often in your personal life in many different ways. But it can also be an incredibly powerful trait in a leadership context um, because you will see and feel what's really going on. You tend to be able to tap into subtext in a level that a lot of people have to work a lot harder to get and then understand how to really nurture and support people as they're moving through challenging circumstances. So those are the 10 Sparketypes.
0: So I love hearing the little description about the, all of them. And I've done the Sparkotype test and I read your book. And so I was learning like deeply about all of them. And one of the questions that came up for me was, Sometimes the framing is like, what makes you feel alive? Like, what brings you to life? And I know that there, when I was doing the assessment, and then when I was reading, there were times where I was like, I never would have thought of this particular behavior as something that brings me to life, but it's something that I do so naturally all the time. It's what people call my superpower. And I've never really like thought about it in a way that I would say is my sparkotype because it, it feels effortless. So it doesn't bring me alive. It just feels so easy that I wouldn't even think about it making me feel any particular way.
1: Yeah. You know what? Actually, um, what you're sharing is something that we hear all the time. And a lot of times the things that are these impulses that are so natural to us, and so naturally nourishing that we do more of it. We do it a lot. So we become really competent at it, really skilled at it. And it becomes like what we hear the word second nature a lot. It's just second nature to me. It's just what I do. I don't know how or why, or like I haven't, I I don't see myself as having spent tons of time or, you know, I've just, you know, I want to do it. I enjoy doing it. It feels good to me and I've become good at it. And we hear this a lot about the sparkotypes because the motivation to actually invest in becoming good at this thing is completely intrinsic. You do it for no other reason than the way it makes you feel. And then it becomes so second nature that you kind of sometimes forget how it makes you feel. The really interesting experiment to run is to see what happens if you stop doing it for a while and how it actually affects your affect. And that can be really powerful because that actually shows you very often when there becomes a gap in your ability to do it, then you realize for the first time, wow, this was actually giving me so much more than I realized it was giving me. And we'll see that happen sometimes with people who change jobs, where in one job, they actually had full reign to do this thing. And then in the next job, they don't. And maybe they didn't even realize that they wouldn't. And they realize something's missing. And sometimes it takes a little while to realize what's missing. But when they do, they start to say, oh, so this really mattered to me on a level that I didn't realize.
0: Well, so let's talk about that because i'm imagining that people are listening and first they're all going to go and take the assessment and buy your book and learn more about their spark type but for many of us right we're not necessarily in the job that would be most clearly aligned to our spark type so if I am a warrior and I am in a management position, maybe that makes sense. And it's a real clear alignment. But if I'm a nurturer or I'm an advocate and I'm a manager and I'm in a marketing team, then how do I take advantage of this knowledge about myself that I've just gained and apply it into my role as a leader of other people?
1: Yeah, I love this question. And the reason is that nearly every Sparker type can find a conduit to full expression in nearly any job role position company team industry you know when you start to look for it so like you said okay so if you're a manager or a leader of a team and you happen to have the warrior spark type, you feel like wow that's really well aligned there's a natural like straightforward way to express that but like you said what if you're a nurturer and the thing is in any leadership or management position you can lead and manage from the impulse of your sparkotype, no matter what it is. So if you're a nurturer, then your superpower as a leader is going to be profound empathy and the ability to understand how to lift people up, especially when they're struggling. We all know that people we lead and manage struggle, You know, whether it's in the context of a particular project or just in their own personal lives or, or the blend of the two. You know, when you can actually tap into that and and know how to respond to it in a way that lifts people up, it becomes a superpower. Another example would be if you're, for example, a sage, you know, and you're in that management position. And so you're all about awakening insight. Well, what you're going to do is spend most of your time actually figuring out how do I awaken a level of insight and understanding so that people become self-reliant and empowered and super competent at what they're doing. So your ability to to gather and transmit knowledge so that it's not being hoarded by any one person, it's not being hoarded by you, but it's being shared and really installed on a level where there's not just information, but insight, that becomes the place that you really effectively lead or manage from. And you can kind of go through all the 10 different things. Or if you're not a leader, it's the same thing. When you look at the nature of what you're being asked to do, you can pretty much always find a way for your sparkotype to take the lead, even if it's not in the job description, even if it means sort of extending beyond the fundamental tasks that you were hired to do. You do these things that are aligned with your sparkotype because of the way it make you feel. And what you start to notice, which is really kind of cool too, is that people start to respond to it and to you differently. Because you start to become more energized. You know, you you use that phrase coming alive. And I use that phrase a lot myself, but I also like to deconstruct that so we understand what we're talking about. I think precision and language is really important. And when when I use that phrase, I'm talking about the the sweet spot between five states, between meaningfulness. You have a sense of meaning. What you're doing and who you are matters. Flow, you can drop into that ultra-absorbed. Hyper generative, hyper cognitive, hyper efficient state. And also, it just feels stunningly good excitement and energy. You wake up in the morning and you really want to do this thing. You know, it could be really hard work and take a lot of effort, but it actually energizes you and excites you to keep doing it. What we talk about also expressed potential that feeling like you are not holding back, you know, you're not feeling stifled in your identity or in your capabilities. And then finally, a sense of purpose, both immediate, you know, I've, you know, I kind of know what I'm working towards, and also more broadly, a sense of purpose in life. And what we see is that, again, it's preliminary data, but we're, we're sort of rapidly building out the data set on this, is that there are really powerful correlations between doing the work of your sparkotype and those five things. And those are the five things that we tend to really measure in work, in business, because we know that if we can dial in even one of those, everything changes.
0: Yeah, and I have a client who was who I made <laughs> do the assessment, and we talked about this, and we found ways for her to bring her. She was a nurturer, so bring her nurture herself into her role as a manager. And so I, I totally agree with what you're saying about finding ways to do that in whatever job you have, and also outside of your job, right? Like that's another place where. You've talked about people being able to tap into more of that for themselves. I know that has been huge for me. I'm also a maker as my primary. And I have been an artist since I was a child. I actually even went to art school (laughs) and and got a master's or a, a bachelor's in fine arts. And I am constantly making all kinds of things. And there was a long time in my work where I wasn't really acting as a maker. I was satisfying that need outside of my work hours predominantly.
1: Yeah, and, and sometimes that's what we need to do. You know, I think it's always really important to be realistic and practical to me. You know, there's a lot of aspirational things that we're talking about here. And I think that's awesome. But at the same time, you have a different life than I have. And everyone listening to this conversation, we're all gonna have different circumstances, different opportunities, different resources, and different constraints. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because sometimes there's a much more ready path to being able to do this thing and wrap up a, a really solid, sustainable living around it. Sometimes it's more challenging and it may be more challenging just for this particular moment or it may be more persistently challenging. And knowing that you can sort of create a blend of potentially like main job or side hustle or just you know like passion or devotion or hobby on the side and that the blend of this work, and I call it all work because it's all exerting effort, the blend of that can give you this feeling of what you really want. So you don't have to feel constrained. Well, the only way I can come alive is in the context of the thing I get paid to do for many people. You you can, or you can get a lot closer than you ever imagined you could. And even then, if you don't get all the way there, you can start to do it you know, with things on the side, you know, like you, I'm, I'm a maker and there've been times where it just wasn't a part of my experience. And um, I really started to wither on the vine, but when you know, there were times where I needed to pay the rent and and keep the thing that I was doing. And it was going to take a long time to transition out of it. So I would start to work on projects that were really focused on making and creation on the side, just because I wanted that nourishing feeling.
0: So let's talk more about what you can do as a manager when you know the spark type of your team members. So, you know, there's one thing about kind of how you know yourself and can show up differently in your work or in your life. But the other is how do I, as a manager, best manage my team members with information about them?
1: Yeah, I love this question. And something I've I've been thinking a lot more about as we're starting to work with larger and larger organizations and teams, and it works on two levels. One, as a manager, if you know your own type, it helps you much more effectively align the way that you manage with your natural impulse for effort. So that's one side of it. The other side, as you're talking about, is imagine having almost like a one-page map of the impulses that make an entire group of people really come alive. The thing that they would want to do and yearn to do and actually invest in doing on their own. You know, we talk about motivation, And the the theory of motivation for a long time has been based around carrots and sticks, no matter how much we know that actually tends to be pretty ineffective long-term and sometimes immediately also. And, And we also, you know, we know that intrinsic motivation tends to work a lot better, but nobody actually has figured out like, what does that actually mean? The sparkotypes is a big part of the answer to that question because- if you align somebody's or, or if you give somebody, if you give people on your team an opportunity to, to first understand what is their underlying impulse for work that makes them come alive. And then look at the work that they're doing, look at the tasks that are necessary as part of a team or a project, and then figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to in a way where they construct their work so that they can do as much of the work that aligns with this impulse as possible and as little that that is misaligned with it as possible, what you find is it moves friction. It removes friction from the process. And motivation kind of starts to become a non-issue because motivation happens. The need for motivation fundamentally comes from asking people to do work that they're not naturally compelled to do. And so you have to figure out how do we get them to do it when you're talking about aligning your work with your your sparkotype that goes away because this is the work that people wake up in the morning wanting to do now we all know we're realistic you know right there's no way to do that 100% of the time and with 100% of your tasks we all have to do work that is not well aligned that we just have to get through but if we can center as much of the work as possible around this impulse What you'll find is that motivation becomes less of an issue and friction starts to fall away. I had a great conversation with a woman named Azurai Wyckoff and she runs two, two companies, actually, a moving company in Boston and a biodiverse farm in Boulder, Colorado. And she has everybody complete this. And then she has a conversation with everybody on both teams or multiple teams in two different companies about what they learned, about how it feels to them and about whether they feel like they're doing work that aligns well with it. And if they are, then they keep on keeping on. And if not, you know, she starts to work with them to help them figure out, okay, so how do we figure out how to give you as much of this work and position you in a way where you're on the right team in the right project so that you can actually embrace this work. And she said, when she does, everything just works better organically. You know, the effort of having to manage teams becomes so much easier. And that I used the word friction before that actually comes from my conversation with Azurai. You know, she shared with me, she said, it's like friction just vanishes. Wow.
0: That is so powerful and such a good next step for managers to, to do this with their teams and to have those conversations.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. You know, I'm an idea person. And um, the front of my, my own personal website, like the slogan on it says, I make things that move people and to effectively make ideas or make tools that in some way can reach people at scale and then hit businesses where, you know, you can start to really exponentially leverage these ideas to make a difference, not just in customers' lives, but in like everybody's life within an organization. I feel like these are tools to help us all be at our best. And we're in a moment in, in time and in culture and society where we need that more than ever.
0: So agreed. So we're running out of time. So I wonder if you can tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I knew this question was coming <laughs> <laughs> and I have been the lemonade stand kid for my entire life. So I've always been the boss. But there have been a couple of stints where I have worked for other people, and I did did about five years as a lawyer, actually. And I started out my career as an enforcement attorney at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which is like a giant government bureaucracy and agency. And I was immediately put onto a team where my manager threw me on an investigation and a case that had already been, you know, it was moving along, the team was going, and and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified because especially when you, when you get dropped into a, you know, a, a giant government bureaucracy like that, it's kind of like sink or swim. And she must have seen something in my eyes because she kind of like pulled me aside and really helped guide me and had regular meetings with me and invested in me and kind of, she paid attention to how I was feeling as a human being, not just to the quality of work I was doing and what I was getting done and to me that it was a really powerful example and it was also powerful because in that same organization like i spent about 3 years there i had the the exact opposite effect with another individual so there was a lot of contrast there and i came to really understand how that that was not a necessarily a normal experience and that you know if i was going to work or be managed um, by someone else. I, I looked for that. I sought it out and I tried to figure out what the team dynamics were going to be and what the dynamic was with the manager um, before I would say yes or no to something.
0: Oh, so important not to take those kinds of good managers for granted.
1: Yeah. And I think it's like the type of thing where everybody can be that person, but sometimes we just, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of figuring out how do we be that person.
0: Exactly, exactly. And where can people learn more about you, Jonathan? Get a copy of your book and take the Spark Type assessment.
1: Yeah. So if you, you can um, take the assessment at SparkType.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com and even if you forget the E in the middle, it'll still get you to the right place because we, we, we have the uh, URLs that redirect you there. Um, me personally is just uh, um, jonathanfields.com and uh, our Good Life Project podcast is uh, pretty much any listening app you want. And the book is available pretty much everywhere.
0: Amazing. I feel like I could ask you a bajillion more questions (laughs) because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, So, thank you so much for giving us this overview and starting to help us make sense of how we can apply Spark types to ourselves and to our
1: teams. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it.
0: I love using Spark type assessments with my coaching clients. So, this week I am giving members of the Modern Manager community my discussion guide to talking about Spark type with your team. This is the set of questions that I use with my clients when I do team coaching or one-on-one coaching to help them better understand their sparkotype and each other. This guide is available to members only of the Modern Manager community, so to get it, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. And if you work for a government or non-profit agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. And members get to attend an exclusive event with prior guest Josh Saderman. This event is going to be on Thursday, September 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern, where we'll be networking as well as talking about dimensions of diversity in a fun, facilitated program, and I hope that I will see you there. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.